Hello, this is AJ Roberts, 15-year British Forces veteran, entrepreneur, high-performance coach and loving father and husband. This podcast is for the motivated, for the inspired, for those looking to level up their lives through fitness, nutrition and their mindset. Welcome to The Best Version of You. Hello boys and girls and welcome back to another awesome episode of The Best Version of You. Today I am joined by none other than two times Olympic gold medalist and world champion archer, Mrs. Danielle Brown, MBE. Danielle, how are you doing? Great, thank you. Great to be here. Now, guys and girls, uh, I'm really excited to finally get Danielle on the show. She's, uh, she's not been avoiding me. She's just been super, super busy because she's not only a, an athlete, uh, she's a keynote speaker and she does a lot of work helping people all around the country uh, with the online programs um, and just really trying to help inspire people to um, become the best versions of themselves. So I was really keen to get Danielle to come on the show and just share exactly what she does with us um and uh what it takes to sort of be a champion now we um we had ollie hind on the show last week and it was amazing to hear like what levels uh of his mindset that he creates to to be that kind of champion so i'd like to talk about that kind of stuff danielle um but before we get into that kind of stuff obviously mm-hmm. to be in the paralympic games obviously you need to have some form of condition of some sort um and you have a complex regional pain syndrome. Yeah. Now, for the benefit of the, the viewers and, and the listeners, would you mind just explaining a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So complex regional pain syndrome is a neurological condition. So it's caused by my brain and it manifests itself in chronic pain in both my feet all the time. So for me, it started when I was 11 years old. I used to do quite a lot of running. And when I finished running, my feet would hurt. So to start with, it was a minor inconvenience. By the time I was 13, it was there all the time. But I didn't get a diagnosis till I was 16 years old. So my very first trip to London uh, was actually to Great Ormond Street Hospital, where I got the diagnosis. And also learned that, unfortunately, there was no cure. So uh, it was a very difficult time. And it's um, obviously since then, is there, are they anywhere near a cure or is it still very much all about research and, and things like that? Yeah, there's still a bit of research. I think it's one of those things, if they catch it very early on, you're more likely to get better, um, which, which is, is good. It is a way forward, but doesn't obviously help me. So, um, but yeah, it, to be honest, I tend to stay away from looking at what they're doing in the, the field of medicine. You know, for me, I know my condition. I know me. I know my capabilities and what I can do with it. So I just tend to focus on that rather than looking at what doctors think or say. No, no, I, I absolutely love that. And I'm a huge fan of people who, um, who do that exact thing. You know, they, they're always looking through the, the front windscreen rather than the, uh, well, Put, pressing the park button waiting for something to kind of happen I think that's amazing and uh, Ollie had a similar message last week when he found out or oh, he he grew his, into his condition and then just kind of got on with it so to speak but um with the condition itself uh CRPS is is it does it just affect your feet or does it affect other parts of your body in other patients or is it quite commonly in the area where you suffer from 
No, so you can develop it in other areas. Um, it, it's usually caused by a trauma. So if you bang yourself or knock yourself, it um, for some reason it manifests itself uh, in re real strong pain. So a lot worse than what it should do. So it's usually in your limbs, but people do get other areas affected. And for me, it's just both my feet uh, from the ankles down. But because I'm in pain, it does cause other neurological mm. symptoms as well. So um, the, the messages don't quite get to my feet properly. And because I can't walk very far, my, my muscles are really bad. So uh, yeah, not very strong. And, and obviously that condition you have yourself, um, mm -hmm. in terms of mobility and, and getting out and about, um, I, 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 obviously walking is uh, a no-go because of the, the load bearing mm -hmm. from the rest of your body. So uh, you mentioned before uh, off camera, like short distances you need to cover on crutches. Yeah. Uh, and longer distances by, by a chair. Yes, that's right. Yes. Okay. And, and when you do longer distances, um, is it always, always dependent on like what you're doing, whether do you need somebody with you or are you just free flowing and just go rogue all the time? No, I'm far too independent. I'm rubbish at asking for help. Um, and yeah, I end up pushing myself far too hard quite often. But I, yeah, I do just go for it. You know, my philosophy is I'm in pain now. I'm going to be in pain tomorrow. Probably going to be in pain the day after that. So I might as well just get on, get out there and do what I want to do. No, I love it. I absolutely love it. That's amazing. And uh, so obviously from an early age, uh, you've got diagnosed with this condition. What was that um, sudden transition like, if you can remember that far back? I mean, to go from like running around as a kid, which is, um, you know, what every kid should be doing, mm. to then having this uh, disability, did, it, did you really struggle? Did you struggle mentally with it? Yes, I did. Yeah, I found it very, very difficult. So my, my self-esteem completely flatlined. You know, I was brought up in, in a wonderful family environment. You know, I didn't come from a place of privilege, but I did come from a place of love and support. Um, my parents fed me all the right messages, which was just amazing. Um, my confidence was really, really high. And then disability hit and it just it flatlined because... Uh, well, many reasons. I think partly, I th if I look look back, I could name one person with a disability, which was Stephen Hawking. <laughs> and, you know, cause I, I, back then Paralympic sport wasn't as big. You didn't have as yeah. many role models. And I couldn't quite resonate with sort of an older guy that was really great at science, you know. So I, I found it difficult thinking about that future. I had all these big goals and ambitions. And I sort of really worried whether people would see past the crutches in the wheelchair to the value that lay beneath. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's absolutely beautiful. I love that. And um, what about friends at school? Were they all very supportive? Um, especially because, you know, they might be you know, off doing sport. I mean, was there any other uh, disabled children in your school or was it just yourself? Not many. So there were a couple in wheelchairs, but again, I felt like I couldn't, because at that time I was hopping around on crutches, um, mm. so it was a bit more mobile, so I felt like I couldn't quite relate. And in terms of friends, I, well, I wasn't the most popular person at school, but I did have a really small group of close friends and they were fantastic, you know. They understood that it took a bit more time to do things. I can't walk in a straight line to save my life. So always banging into things and knocking. The, the medication I was taking was making me very forgetful, very sleepy in classes. So, so they were absolutely fantastic with that. And, and like the medications you were taking, was it very much pain relief, was it? 
that you were having to take or is it um, just sort of stabilizing your nerves and things like that sort of things for nerve pain? Uh, everything yeah I was on the, a cocktail of, of drugs uh, yeah <laughs> I sounds really bad um, but yeah I was on sort of a, a lot of your really strong painkillers I was on things that were, would hopefully help nerve pain uh, things like amitriptyline which yeah. also doubles yeah. up that's an antidepressant as well and that was awful it kept making me fall asleep uh, I ended up getting really miserable it, it, yeah I, and mm. yeah not good not good well, I can only imagine because, um, like in two thousand and six, I I, slip, I had two slip discs from uh, in my lower back from building a bridge on a military course, and um, at the time that you know you don't suddenly go, oh, you know, you don't know you've got slip discs, um, uh, but yeah, I couldn't walk anywhere. I was just waddling everywhere, and it was just sheer sheer pain on my hips all the time. Yeah. Um, and because my age, I think I was only 23 at the time. They said they didn't want to like operate on me or anything else like that because it's, they were like, oh, you know, it's the kind of thing that happens in your 40s or your 50s. So they just hammered me with like tramadol and uh, and dictafenic yeah. and, and was like that just pure rest and medication, which is like probably the worst thing to do because I just lay there um, yeah. feeling sorry for myself and like you know the whole you feel mentally rubbish. All your, all my army mates were off like going to Belize and places like that and. I was just lying there, like just feeling useless. And my son was like six months old at the time, and I couldn't really oh, no. play, couldn't really play with him or bath him properly or anything like that. It was a, yeah, it was it was a rough time. But um, it's it's a bit frustrating sometimes, isn't it? You know, any injury is is frustrating for anybody. Um, but having to take pills all the time is just you know can get the better of you, really, can't it mentally? Yeah, it was tough. Uh, but again, you know, I had a fantastic family and my, my mum and dad didn't let up on me because of mm. this, uh, because it took such a long time to get a diagnosis as well. We'd always been a very outdoorsy family. So they were really determined that that was going to continue. So I was mm. still walking up mountains, I, you know, it was absolute agony. But uh, and at the time, I, I thought it was really, really cruel. But looking back, it was one of the best things that they could have done because it wow. really helped me. Uh, taught, taught me my limits yeah um, yeah. yeah 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 oh wow so that's awesome um and I, I like the fact what you touched on before um yeah. about having just a small inner circle of friends that were there and supporting of you um you know wanted to see you win wanted to see you probably smile and lift you up and all that kind of stuff which i think especially nowadays is so important isn't it because I'm having this conversation with my own kids. Uh, uh, my son's 14 tomorrow, my girl's 11. Um, and they talk about numbers of friends. Um, mm. And we all know now we're growing up, like it's never always like that. It's not about numbers of friends, is it? Like you're in a circle, so important. Um, and I, I like how you acknowledge that at such an early age. I think that's, uh, that's quite remarkable. And it's obviously done, done well for you. Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, and again, you know, in sport, when, when I moved into that, it was, again, building the right people around me and having a really, it was a really tight-knit group of people. But, mm. it, yeah, not a numbers game. You're looking for the right people, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, well, it's the same with social media, isn't it? It's not all about the number of followers you have. It's always it's about the quality engagement. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, you suddenly out of was out of nowhere got into archery on your 15th birthday was a was it a present or something that um from your parents i had that all happen 
Uh, no, so I I really miss doing sport. You know, I've gone from being really active, doing every single sport I could, to pretty much being sat inside, and that was really really hard. So when I, I I actually heard about archery from somebody off the school bus, and I thought I can do that. You know, it doesn't involve lots of running around or walking. And um, my mom and dad said, if I wanted to go, I could arrange it all myself. So I did. And it just so happened that the beginners course coincided with my birthday. So I arranged it. And mom and dad said that they'd get me the beginners course for my birthday present. So me and my dad went along. And uh, yeah, I was really, really bad at it. <laughs> it was so much fun. And well, So you, obviously you, you took a, a like to it straight away. And from there like how did it kind of how did it like ripple did it just did you just keep going like weekly or was it something uh did you did your parents get you like a bow and arrow and you set up targets in the garden like how did uh, how did it all evolve yeah so well you do the beginners course six weeks which i passed and i really loved it and i i really wanted to continue my mom and dad said that that was fine but archery equipment very expensive and I had two younger sisters as well so they said that if I was really serious about it I had to buy my first bow out of my savings account so my dad and I we spent the whole summer looking at different bow types and figuring out what would be the best and really thinking it through and I was still really enthused and motivated to, to go and, and continue with it that I bought my first bow in the September so I think I finished the course around May, June time. So there was, mm. there was a big gap and I went for a compound bow, which is a lot shorter. It's got three strings, a pulley system, very fast, very powerful, very accurate. Uh, and I went with that because as a junior, I was still growing and the bow could grow with me. Uh, and when I got that, actually, I was really good with that bow. I was a lot better than I had been with the training bow. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, and then... Three years later, uh, you made it into Team GB. I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. European Championships was really fun. Uh, and what was that like for you? Like just that whole uh, jump into like becoming like well, I guess a professional athlete um, and competing in the European Championships. Was it quite startling and daunting at first? Yeah, uh, well, it, it wasn't. I think it was more exciting than anything else. Mm. You know, you start off and you get better and you get better and it's about hitting the next milestone and the next goal and representing your country, getting that Great Britain shirt. I, I remember actually I'd not been doing the sport for very long, I think about a year, and I remember actually seeing some of the GB guys in their tracksuits. I was so determined that I was going to get a tracksuit. So, you know, when it finally came through the post, I was so excited. And I'm flying away to to the competition. I was it was just incredible. Uh, meeting the team, being part of that was it was an awesome, awesome experience. And uh, where was the uh, the first competition held that you competed in? So that was out in the Czech Republic. Oh wow! Okay, think of worst places. It's, uh... Well, to be fair, all I have ever seen of the Czech Republic, I've competed there three times, and all I've seen is a training field and the inside of a hotel. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you didn't manage to get out and about in Prague then? No, no, all seen to Prague is the airport. So straight from the airport to the training and we were just living on site. So you were there. Oh, um, really? Yeah, yeah, seven days a week. But uh, it was all worth it because you jumped straight to number one. 
Yeah, like what? I mean, that event was a very interesting one because I, I did, I broke two world records in the ranking rounds and that, that score gave me my world number one status. But mm. the match play didn't quite go to plan uh, and I completely fell to pieces in that bit. So that's, um, that's where the pressure's on, that's where the medals are won. We've got 12 arrows shooting at 70 metres and I just got really nervous. I couldn't control my shots, spraying the arrows everywhere. I could run, I'd have been out there quicker than the speed in bullet. It was awful. But um, yeah, I, I learned more from that event than I have done probably any other event that I've been to. Wow, that's awesome. And um, what year was that, the, the cha those championships? So that would be 2006. Okay, and then two years later, you're representing uh, Great Britain in the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. Yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, and what was that like for you, obviously, going from the championships to actually competing in your first ever Olympics? Well, I mean, it was amazing. The, the Paralympics in Beijing was, it was just an incredible experience the the village was was insane you know everyone was so friendly everyone was so nice it's an ultra competitive event obviously but outside of the competition everybody talks to each other it's really smiley it's, it's just completely different to normal reality but um yeah getting getting there getting your your gb kit being part of the bigger team not just the archery team and then competition wise uh, again broke another world record there and my matches this time went much better and came away with the gold, so. Wow. And was there, obviously you won the gold there. Mm -hmm. um, what, what stage of the Olympics were, was your event? Was it uh, right at the beginning or was it like middle or the end? So archery tends to run for a full week. Mm. So we start relatively early on. I think it started a couple of days after the opening ceremony. Uh, then you do your ranking round, so 72 arrows at 70 metres. Then we do the individual matches uh, that, you know, you might do one or two matches a day as you uh, make your way through to the finals. Oh, wow. And um, in terms of your competition, what was, uh, what was your stiffest competition there? Who, who, who were they from? Well, Great Britain, we had three competitors there, so mm. that, that was always going to be, be quite tough. But um, the year before at the World Championships, I actually shot against a Chinese lady in the, um, in the gold medal match. So she got silver and I, I got the, the gold the World Championship title. And yeah, she shot really, really well there. But my first match in Beijing, I was against her. Mm. It was her home country. She had uh, all these 8,000 supporters. I think for me, my teammates turned up and Prince Edward. Uh, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was really um, daunting. But when I got into the competition, I didn't notice the crowd. I just went out there, uh, won the match, shot really well and progressed through. I was going to say, did you like, not stroll in there like Conor McGregor-esque, like give her, give her a thousand yards there and just say, look, I've not come here to take part. I've come here to take over. Like, <laughs> Put the fear into her, in her own country. Um, to be honest, I my philosophy is my biggest competitor is myself. Yeah. So you know, I can if I make a good shot, the arrow is going to go in the middle. If I make a bad shot, then it could go anywhere, and that's down to me. Mm. So I think if I'm busy trying to worry about what my opponent's thinking or doing, I'm not concentrating on what I'm doing. 
And to be honest, like my preparation, I quite like to be relaxed, I like to be quite hyped up as well. So I'd laugh and joke around with my team. And if my competitor wanted to take anything from that, then, then they may do so. But I wouldn't actively go out there and try and put anybody up. No, that's, that, that's cool. I mean, everyone's got their own strategies, haven't they? Uh, yeah. I, I, to, be, to be honest, a lot of people do it for show anyway, don't they? Um, but uh, with, with archery, obviously mm-hmm. it's like a really, really, really skillful thing. I've tried it a few times and I'm absolutely rubbish at it. Uh, I rank it up there with uh, how crap of a fisherman I am. Um, do you find yourself like, uh, if you see anybody doing like, or shooting a bow and arrow on TV because you're so like, because it is a fine art and you've kind of like mastered it. Do you find yourself like looking at exactly how they're holding the arrow and kind of critiquing it without even realizing it? Like your subconscious, do you find yourself going sometimes, well, that's not how you do it? Yeah, pretty much. Like I, I think for TV, a lot of it's done for film purposes, you know, and yeah. I have worked on a few film shoots, or adverts and things and, and photo shoots and, how the photographer often wants you to stand and how you would do it normally is very mm. different. So yeah, there's a lot of artistic license going on, but yeah, you just look at it and like, ah, that's really bad. But yeah, I was, I was, I was asking, cause uh, obviously in, like every military uh, or veteran I know who will watch a program and there's, you know, soldiers running around on it. Like you just sit there going, you wouldn't do that. Why would you do that? That's rubbish. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah so that's that. what I was going to ask. Do you, do you ever watch like series like Vikings or something like that? And then you see all these people like holding bows and arrows and stuff like that, and then just sort of question like, why are they doing it like that? See, the Vikings is really interesting because you can tell that the bows are shooting a very low poundage, so yeah. there's no way that you know you see all these people and falling over with arrows stuck in them. It's like that. No, probably just bounce off them. To be fair. No, that's good. Like, I don't want anyone shooting too many arrows at my my Lagatha because she's uh she's she's my TV crush. I'm not gonna lie, putting it out there on my own podcast. Oh, she's amazing. Like yeah, yeah. I I think as an actress, I mean, she's uh, an amazing athlete in her own right. So yeah, she's uh I think she's brilliant. Um. So going back to obviously your well, career as as an archer, um, where to win the 2008 games and then obviously you then competed in London 2012 um, what is that four-year gap like for you is it um, are you competing weekly or monthly in events or are you literally traveling around the world like how busy is it so basically I'm a nutter and did a law degree Okay. So, uh, yeah, no, I'd already started my my degree. In, in fact, the the event that I went to, my first event, the European Champs, I actually got my A level results there. Found out whether or not I've made it into university, mm. which was one of the reasons I didn't perform very well in match play. And I did take a year out to concentrate on Beijing. So after that, I went straight back to uni and did my last two years. So pretty much spent two years. Um, I, I was training whilst I was at university. I was going going up to the National Sports Centre. I had a target in my room that I was shooting at. Um, I'm not entirely sure whether that was allowed, but it wasn't on my uh, my accommodation uh, <laughs> agreement. So no, all good, all good. But um, yeah, so I spent two years doing that and training. 2010, I actually made the able-bodied team. Yes. So, yeah, that was very exciting. 
So, but when I'd done that, I was literally out of the country every two weeks because I was doing both para and able-bodied, and that was uh, that was really tough but very exciting. And and you were the first person to represent England, and uh, uh, or to say first disabled person to represent England in the able-bodied team as well. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, which is amazing. Yeah, I think archery we don't really have any disability clubs in the UK so if you go to an archery club you you just go to an archery club and that's one of the reasons I love the sport you know I I didn't want to belong to a club that was purely for people with disabilities you know but for me I'm a person and that's the most important thing and being able to compete against anybody on a level playing field was just amazing. Mm. So, um, and I was determined that I would make it to the able-bodied team. You know, if I could shoot one arrow in the middle of the target, why can't I get them all there? That's my, my philosophy. Uh, 2010, I wasn't expecting it because that was my last year at university. So that was the plan was to, to focus on that and then archery afterwards. But yeah, I just came out into 2010 shooting amazing scores completely shocked myself by making the team I think I shocked uh, quite a few other people it was it was just incredible wow that's amazing and uh, where was the 2010 Commonwealth Games that was the one in Delhi that uh, yeah the one oh, wow. that everyone said was falling down and uh, <laughs> yeah it was good fun good fun oh amazing um but obviously the penultimate uh thing for you was getting to London 2012 and retaining that gold and uh, you did exactly that so I mean congratulations it's uh, thank you it's an, it's an amazing achievement and to do it on home soil as well yes yeah very stressful uh you know being a hot favorite a lot of people talk about home crowd advantage in many ways I think mm. it was a home crowd disadvantage but it was being able to represent your country in your country was uh, amazing yeah, I mean, even the, all the able-bodied games, we've seen the, the sheer amount of medals that uh, we won. It was unbelievable, wasn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. And as I mentioned off camera, for people like myself and, uh, you know, hundreds and, well, I think there's several thousands of a military personnel that got to be involved uh, doing security in, in, the, uh, in the games and that and, uh, re- you know, really got loads out of it. It was an amazing experience, like, for the whole country. Yes, yeah. No, absolutely. And um, what was it just? What was it like for you um, being there on the podium, getting your gold medal with the British national anthem on home soil? What What's that feeling like? Do you know what? It's kind of one of those things that, in the moment, I don't think you appreciate as much because you literally you get off the line and as soon as that last arrow is being shot you're, you're off and you're told to get into your tracksuit and you know you, you're attached to all your gear so somebody's quickly grabbing your tracksuit to put on and you're having to get changed like just behind a, a little bit of um, a curtain with all the officials walking past and it's like quick where's my hairbrush um, you know to where I, I wore a, a bright pink hat you don't want to go out on the podium with hat hair because the pictures end up everywhere. So <laughs> th- then you then you're wheeled out um, onto the podium straight away. It's all sort of a, a really time to precision. You, you're up there, you get the um, you get your medal. And my uh, biggest worry because my my balance is not the best. I was really worried that I just uh, the Prince of Sweden ha- hangs the medal around your neck. I got overbalanced and squishing, but no, I managed to stay upright, so it was all good. 
and then you're out into media and then to the drug testing. So it's a, a really crazy, crazy um, few moments. Mm. So I think afterwards you can really reflect and make sense of all the emotions because there's so much going on. You, you sort of on the come down from the adrenaline. I think a lot of it for me was relief. Uh, I'd managed to do it. I was under so much pressure, so much stress. You're obviously really happy and proud. It was the first time my family and friends had seen me. So having them there in the crowd was just amazing. So yeah, it was, it was amazing, but difficult to make sense of at the time. Yeah, it's just almost like you're not, get, you're not given any time to really take it all in and absorb it and actually reflect on like what you've actually achieved. Yeah. Um, and it, I suppose ultimately, just actually all the work that's gone into that moment um you don't have time to reflect on until afterwards um so, but yeah i mean it's it's great and this is why i love having people on the show like yourself who just um who have achieved great things um but also just trying to get people to understand the, the journey it takes to to get there uh the discipline uh, the determination you know um and just and the tenacity and everything else like that you know and just show and showing up all the time and just all yeah. that hard, all that hard work um is is the journey a big part for you as in i know it's a big part but i mean for you personally is it something you really really thrive off yeah i think you know to stand on the podium for literally it's like you get your medal of flowers and a, a national anthem and that's it you know there's absolutely no point if that's the only reason you're doing it so for me when I look back at sporting career, there were so many positives to take from it, you know, being able to travel the world, meeting all these amazing people, experiencing new cultures. I loved competing, didn't matter where it was, you know, I loved that adrenaline rush when I, I was competing and trying to execute perfect shots. I, I enjoyed training, you know, when you're working with your coach, and I had a really great group of uh, people around me when I trained, some really awesome training partners, and we'd have fun, and I'm, I'm very competitive, so we'd, uh, we'd compete over cups of tea in training, um, so yeah, it was just the whole journey was amazing, and being able to make something of it and get to stand on that podium at the end of it was really special. No, that that's uh, it's it's an amazing story, and I, 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 you know, I've got so much time for people who, like yourself, who have a condition. Um, you know, no matter what form it's in, uh, they totally accept what they have, and they do the best with you know what they can. They they're able to do, um, and to go on and do things like that is like absolutely phenomenal. I, I love it, and I love this is why I love doing my podcast so much, and having people like yourself on the show who can share their story and uh, what is achievable if you you know if you really look at the big picture and uh there's a world of opportunity out there and you know and you've been traveling a lot of it yeah yeah absolutely and with uh the traveling you've not only been traveling for sport uh you've very much got into keynote speaking as well i have yes yeah yeah so um just just run us through like the the kind of running the mill talks that you do and like what kind of audiences you speak to uh where you go with it Oh, see, I um, well, I love the variety of speaking. So it's so obviously sharing my story. I I don't just like standing there and talking about myself, though. So for me, it's about a purpose and being able to pass on important messages. Yeah. So for me, it's about um, I, I guess resilience is a big one. 
So obviously uh, the, the disability is very difficult to uh, to come to terms with. My exit out of sport also wasn't particularly good. Mm -hmm. I was declassified out, so they decided overnight my disability was no longer eligible. Okay. And went through a complete identity crisis there, which was very, very tough. Yeah. So being able to share that about, about things like identity, about authenticity, and um, how, you know, fr from that experience, how I actually found who I was and what I was meant to be doing. I think, as you said, you've mentioned the, the hard work. I think the passion, the perseverance, confidence is a huge one for me. You know, as mm. I said, as a teenager, it flatlined. The self-esteem, self-worth was really low. Sport gave me that back and it taught me mm. how to be confident. So being able to pass on these messages to others, I find is really, really important. And in terms of where I do it, all over the place, um, yet UK-wide, I go to schools. I'm very passionate about working with young people, but equally, I really like sort of the gritty, challenging corporate stuff. So I do a lot around diversity and inclusion. So looking at organisations and how we can bring that performance mindset into the, the DNI sphere to drive change and, and real sustainable impacts there. Mm. But that, that's amazing. I like the diversity of uh, of the audiences you speak to. I think that's, that's it's quite it's quite a, a, a well, it's quite a talent for starters. Um, but it's it's good. It's almost like um, it's almost like it's, it's your purpose, really. Uh, it's sharing your message. It's it's fantastic. And uh, like other many speakers out there, you know, you kind of know early on that like this is what you're meant to do um something kind of usually triggers that um was there a particular thing that triggered that for you that you know you speaking was a, a thing that you you would excel at and you know you really had the platform to to get your message out there well to be honest when i was at school i hated speaking i used to get so nervous and i just did not want to be stood up there in front of the room and everyone looking at me and i couldn't think of anything worse mm. But when I won in Beijing, I started getting uh, invited to all these events and it was like, oh, you know, I'm being paid to do this. This is really exciting. And I think when you're getting paid to do something as well, it puts the pressure on it even more because mm. if you're just doing it as a freebie, it doesn't really matter if you mess it up because you, you just, there. Uh, you, you obviously want to do a good job. But I think when you're actually being paid to do it, you've got to be perfect. You've got to deliver yeah and so I, I got really nervous but I actually it was really similar to competing so and, and that's what I still love about it today you know that adrenaline rush you, you're out there you can't hide you've got to deliver a, a great result so um, yeah I, I guess I started after Beijing doing a few and it just built up from there and found that I really enjoyed it I was getting great feedback great recommendations mm. and, and off we went uh, that's awesome and uh, I, I love the fact that you you know you go around schools and uh, you're talking to people about that and is is confidence uh, and self-esteem something that you talk about uh, to pupils yeah yeah absolutely I um, I think confidence is it fascinates me so I, I, I work in all levels of the education system and I always love it in primary schools if you ask a question you get like hundreds of little hands shooting into the air and honestly some of them look so excited they look like they're going to burst if you mm -hmm. if you don't pick them and you you know you point to them and invariably they'll go I forgot but it's great because they have no concept of 
being thought of as, as an idiot. You know, if they step out of line or, or they do something wrong, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. They're not worried about that. And I think when you move into secondary school and you start gaining a bit more awareness, a bit more identity, um, uh, that's where I think a lack of confidence and a bit of self-doubt comes in. And people don't tend to put themselves forward as much. They sort of become a bit more reserved. And I, I just love that mentality of primary school kids. Mm. And it's trying to transfer that across uh, to some of the older ones. Yeah, I, I think, uh, and it's something I'm uh, doing myself and talking at schools and stuff like that. And uh, like key stage four. Mm. Um, and going back to what you said there about not putting a hand up to, or answering a question in front of people. And, uh, and I'm sure many people listening and watching would agree. A lot of it's probably because of a, a, an experiences or experiences they've had uh, through social media where they've put a post or a photo of themselves and people have written negative comments about it. So then it just yeah. knocks their confidence uh, down massively and it makes them not want to say anything or do anything because they're worried about what people might say. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I, I think as well, so we're gaining that identity, we also gain this amazing talent of mind reading and we think we know what other people are thinking, which mm. isn't helpful at all. But uh, yeah, I've done a lot of studies in schools as well. So actually, um, girls' confidence tends to be a lot lower than boys' confidence. Mm. And that's very noticeable from about the age of 11, 12, yeah. sometimes even younger. Yeah, and like on we're going through it all exactly with our our kids here. Um, you know, we have sit down and have dinner every single night, and it's something we talk about with them. And they tell us about what people are writing in group chats on social media, um, what people have been saying about them. You know, like making things up, and you know, it's, it's all very hormonal. Um, the key difference is like between them and us is that they've got access to like six seven eight social media platforms to chat on whereas like we just dealt with it at school or um and that, that was it it was either you yeah. talk, talk about it at school and you talk about it with your parents but nowadays people obviously hide behind keyboards don't they uh, not just teenagers obviously adults as well and it's uh it's never a growing problem um I know obviously it's a, that's the whole another podcast episode on uh, yeah. on on, so, on social media problems, but um, uh, it, obviously is that something you talk about in your in your talks to groups and teenagers? Um, what, what sort of feedback do you get from them, like when you're asking people certain questions? Um, it it depends in terms of the the setting, so you'll tend to find that in a big group setting getting feedback is can be quite difficult mm. you know they're much going they're much more forthcoming if you do mentoring on a one-to-one basis over a longer period of time and they get to know you yeah so but yeah in terms of feedback i think that the big issues around body image and that's both uh, boys and girls you know um which i think is really important a lot of the time it's just to focus on on girls but um that that can be a big issue and that again is very much tied into social media what we're seeing and and it's not just about the people commenting on photos of them if they see somebody commenting on somebody else they start relating it back to their personal situation i think that's something that as humans we all do don't we we are the most important person in our world so we interpret everything in light of ourselves Mm, and yeah I think young people do do this a a lot more because they've not necessarily learned tools around confidence esteem resilience to to get through that 
Yeah, no, no, I, I totally agree. Uh, and is that, uh, well, based on those findings and stuff like that, is that um, where you created, you created your Journey to Success program? Yeah, so, I mean, as I say, I love speaking. I love going in there, being uh, stood at the front and, and doing my speech. But I find that students might take two or three useful things from that. Mm. For me, through sport, I spent a lot of time working on strategies. I spent a lot of time on my mental routine, and my mindset, and really developing that. So I was the most confident and the mentally strongest I could possibly be. So I found that in schools, it wasn't sustainable to go in like 12 times through the year to teach the the strategies because confidence isn't built overnight. It takes time, it takes practice. So I've created online programs to actually help students develop these strategies. It's got the story through that. So they get that inspiration piece to raise the level of thinking, but Mm. it's backed up by um, real strong strategies to help them. And as a result of uh, doing all this great work and your programming, um, that led you to uh, co-authoring a uh, a new book that came out in October last year. Yeah, do you know what? I can't take credit for the idea. So my my co-author came up with the idea, uh, and he's a, a very special special author. Um, he he's the youngest self development author in the world, and I actually met wow. him when he was seven years old. What's his name? Nathan Kai, so yes, he's, he's pretty famous, isn't he? Uh, well, he's uh, he's super smart, you know, he's a, a Menson, he does jujitsu, so he's um, he's won medals at national and European level in jujitsu for um, and he's also grade four in his piano, so he's uh, how old is he now? He's nine now, yeah, I've, I've seen some clips of him, I, I know who you're talking about, yes, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was all Nathan's idea. I met him at an event. He came up yeah. to me and said, have you written a book for children about how they can be the best they can be? Oh, wow. I said, no, but that's a really good idea. And he thought about it and asked whether we could write one with him. So it took us a year to write it. He wanted to do it before his eighth birthday. We uh, got it written, got it mm. sorted and uh, took him to the London Book Fair. And we came away with a book deal with Button Books, which is uh, awesome. But that that's that's great and it's um there's not that many self-help books for kids out there is there um you know like te- that, that whole social pressure as well with teenagers you know, if a teenager's reading a self-help book uh, you're very much going to get uh, you know the usual well, what are you reading that for yeah yeah and that was sort of one of the things that that, that we were really mindful of and i i think one of the when I wrote it, you know, I wrote my chapter. So we split the chapters. Uh, Nathan wrote half and I wrote half. And I remember sending my first three chapters into him and it came back covered in strikes through red pen, you know, and his feedback was children don't like being told what to do. So I think it was really helpful having his insight and perspective on board because it makes it a bit more real and more what young people want rather than what adults think they want. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That, that, I think that's absolutely amazing being able to co-write a, uh, a book with a, a young child who's obviously clearly um, clearly got a brain and a mind on him. Uh, yeah. I think that, that's absolutely amazing. And I, I imagine it gets uh, gets the message out there. I'm going to have a look at that. I'm going to have a look at that book and uh, order that if I'm at Amazon to add to my collection. Oh, uh, super. I actually think that's really amazing. 
um and you know the more things that are out there like that the better mm. really and as well as the message yeah yeah absolutely yeah i think i think it's it's just so important that children learn that in terms of confidence you know when i was growing up i always thought confidence is something you had or, or you hadn't got i didn't realize it's something you could learn and my whole life people kept telling me i needed to be more confident but nobody ever showed me how nobody ever showed me what i needed mm. to do and there are so many amazing strategies out there that i think it is really important to pass it on to people at that age yeah no, no, I, I totally agree. And I, I love the titles and Be Your Best Self is very much aligned to what, you know, the name of my podcast, for example. Um, but that, you know, that message uh, is pertinent to everybody. doesn't matter how old you are. Yeah, um, absolutely. So in respect of that, um, mm -hmm. what, what does uh, being the best version of you mean to you? So for me, it's about living life on my terms. It's about being involved with projects that I'm passionate about and, and make a real difference. So I actually find it more rewarding helping other people achieve that than it is to win gold medals, if that makes sense. You know, you yeah. just feel so great when you get some amazing feedback or you go and deliver something for a really great cause and you see it making an impact. Uh, I do want to write more books, so I I love writing and really passionate about that. But again, it is about providing something that helps people and you know really really making mm. a difference in terms of their mindset. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, we're very 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 much aligned uh, on that respect. And um, I think you clearly find it easy to just use your resources instantly to be able to help other people it's almost like second nature isn't it um and you know that's, that's clear and obvious with all the work you do and it's fantastic and it's very similar for myself i've just come back from uh, sierra leone and doing the medical mission over there and I had a lot of people saying to me like god oh, i could never do what you did um but quite close-minded thinking that it's just full of loads of little kids running around with ak-47s when it's not it's completely opposite it's like the most humbling place i've ever been um yeah. And uh, the message I was trying to get across was that like every single one of us have the capacity to be able to help somebody using the resources that you've got at that time. Now, uh, obviously you'll be, you know, you'll have a big network similar to myself and we've all got that ability to be able to reach out and instantly, you know, ask somebody, Oh, can you help this person with this person? Or, you know, I, I can see you're struggling with that. Why don't you speak to this person? Um, or, it could be something as simple as, you know, helping your neighbor with their, who's elderly with their shopping once a week. You know, every single one of us has got that capacity to step outside being so self-absorbed self in this current society we live in, which is so fast paced. Um, it's fast paced because we allow it to be. Yeah. Uh, and that's the key thing, I think. Um, and people really struggle to be able to take a step back um, and slow down a little bit. Uh, yes. And uh, yeah, so I think it's, it's amazing that, that you can do that. Um, well, thank you. And that you're doing it constantly. Um, mm. And again, it's just proof in the pudding that no matter what your condition is, no matter where you live or what your current situation is, you can always, A, you can look up and, you know, keep bettering yourself. And B, you can always help other people. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I just think it's, 
it's more rewarding, more fulfilling when you help others. And, and you know, people are part of that journey. So, so many people help me achieve mm. that it's only the right thing to do to put something back. But it's more than that. You know, it's not just doing it for, for that reason. When you look at the motivations behind it, it, I suppose that that is one of my biggest driving factors. Yeah. Is, is having that ability to help others. Yeah. That, and it's, it's fantastic. And um, the more people that can rub off on, you know, the better. And that's, that's why I started this podcast as a platform for people like yourself to be able to, you know, spread that love, spread that message and, and get it out there to as many people as possible because um, there's so many people that will be listening that find you and your message so relative to them. Oh, cool, cool. So what is uh, the future looking like for you uh, over the next 12 months? Um, have you got big plans? Are you off anywhere, off on any ventures? Uh, very exciting. Got my first international speech, which I'm looking forward wow. to. So, uh, yeah, that's always the plan. But uh, in terms of what I want to do, I, I want uh, a couple more books published. That's why I'm busy working, busy writing, which is very exciting stuff. Want to continue growing speaking and training and, re and really sort of, um, I guess, raise my profile in terms of this new venture. So mm. really showcase... Uh, the offerings that I've got so particularly the, the online program so I've got those for schools but also individuals can get them and the book that I've written with Nathan because I just think it's it's such a wonderful resource for young people so for me it's all about really I guess pushing it out there getting people to know that we're here and what we're about and what we're trying to achieve with all this while sort of working on projects that I'm passionate about as well well uh, well excellent and it's uh, hopefully um this platform my podcast will help you raise that profile a little bit better so guys and girls watching and listening make sure you share this podcast to all your own friends and family who uh will take some inspiration um and find danielle you know you know really really relative to their own situation and of course to help danielle out and uh to get the message out there to loads more kids and teenagers you know that just need lifted up a little bit Um, with, uh, every, uh, sorry, every guest that I have on, uh, mm -hmm. I always, I always ask them, um, a, a question. Okay. So we've got, uh, you've got this little time machine and you've got, yeah. the, you've got the ability to send a little post-it note back to 15 year old Danielle. Now I always say like 15 is a good age because you're not quite hit that 16 years old and you, you know, you're not quite finished school and your head's still all over the place and you don't know what you want, what you want to do. Um, what message would you have for 15-year-old Danielle? It definitely would have to be around my self-belief, so believe in, in yourself more. Yeah. But I guess a bit deeper than that because, as I say, I really don't like it when people say that, you know, just believe in yourself or be yeah. more confident because it's, it's just the worst advice ever. Mm. So yeah, it'd have to be around that there, there are ways to develop this. So really invest in yourself, innovate yourself. So, so for me, my, my whole philosophy is that in order to get the most out of me as an athlete, as me as a business person, I've got to get the most out of me as a person first so really invest in yourself and work on finding ways to grow that confidence and that esteem yeah definitely i think that's that's awesome that's a really great message uh, you know that, that really is um it's 
it's a bit of a trend as well I found with uh, the guests that I have on and the kind of response I get to that question is a lot of it is you know geared towards believing in yourself yeah. you know try and shut out the peripheral noise and you know not listening to too many people and that and it is difficult you know like I say that when you are a teenager and you are at that age and you've got so many people saying oh do this do that um but yeah that's, that's absolutely fantastic message where can people find you oh super so we're on twitter so okay. danny brown mbe uh, and danny is d-a-n-i instagram danielle brown mbe and i'm on linkedin as well uh yeah and uh, that's obviously where i found you on LinkedIn. oh yeah yeah super oh and i do have a website daniellebrown.co.uk so yeah fantastic and uh, danielle i will put uh, all your links and your tags in the show notes as well um just before we go, obviously, um, you mentioned MBE. Um, when was it you got your MBE and uh, what was that like for you? So I got the MBE in 2013. It was after winning gold in London. So all the uh, Paralympic and Olympic gold medalists got uh, an MBE, which is very exciting. Oh, wow. So, yeah, yeah, it was a, a really nice, nice day. Was that the same time as Ollie Hind? Because uh, he competed yeah. in the 2012 as well. Yes, no, yeah, uh, no, we, I, I, I remember all this. I think uh, actually the day after my MBE, I was sitting next to him at Wimbledon in the Royal Box. Really? Yeah, yeah, so oh. uh, it was quite, quite an exciting uh, week to London that was, MBE one day, Wimbledon the next. No yeah, way, no way. I, I am really jealous because I'm a <laughs> bit, I'm a really big tennis fan. I love playing tennis and uh, I'm in the ballot for this year's Wimbledon, so I'm really hoping that... Uh, I get lucky and get some tickets. Um, oh, yeah. Might see how I can try and get an MBE first. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll come up with that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, guys and girls, uh, you've heard some phenomenal uh, advice and inspiration there from Danielle Brown, MBE. Um, not just to do with like the sport and, st- and what she does, but more along the lines of, overcoming adversity and just dealing with the condition that she, she she's got and will have for the rest of her life um and how she uses that to lift others up and inspire others to become better versions of themselves as she continues to become a better version of herself daily um i think it's a, an amazing thing you're you've done danielle and an amazing thing you continue to do you know traveling around sharing your message to inspire others you know, the, the world really does need more people like you. Uh, and that's why I was so keen to, to get you on the show. Well, thank you. you know, it's been great to be here. Um, guys and girls, please, please, uh, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us, leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Um, please share this episode far and wide to your friends and family. You know, we really want to get Danielle's message out there. And um, go out there and um, look at Danielle's program she's got online, Journey to Success. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. also also check out Danielle's book that she uh, co-released with young Nathan Kai, uh, Be Your Best Self, Life Skills for Unstoppable Kids. I think the title is fantastic. Yeah, um, thank you. But again, thank you so much for coming on the show, Danielle. It's been absolutely remarkable. And guys and girls, please... Take on as many messages as you can from Danielle today and go out there and be the best version of you.